Chapter thirty five of France to Scandinavia by Frank G. Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. In Christiania. No wonder the Norwegians feel at home in the United States. Their country is much like our pine lands of Michigan and Wisconsin. The farmhouses are not collected into villages as they are in France, Belgium, and Germany. They stand out alone on the fields and most of the buildings are of wood, just as with us. The houses of the towns and cities are largely frame, and the villas about Christiania have their counterparts in St. Paul and Minneapolis. Indeed, the best residential section here is not at all unlike the best streets of St. Paul. There are many houses with gardens about them, and the frame cottage, with a multiplicity of gables, such as is common all over America, is everywhere in evidence. The chief difference is in the roofs. Most of them are of shining tiles, usually red, but often black or yellow. The store buildings in Christiania are similar to ours as they were before we began to erect skyscrapers. There are four, five, or six stories and built in much the same way. The shops look the same, except that they are smaller than in cities of the same size in the United States, but their windows are well-dressed and the merchants are businesslike. Indeed, if you could take an airplane and drop down into Christiania out of the darkness, you might suppose yourself in an American city. You would find the people big-boned and husky, and the women tall and mostly blue-eyed, fair-haired, and attractive. You would find American goods in the stores, American tools on the farms, and see that nearly all of the motor cars and motorcycles are of American make. Moreover, you would meet more motor trucks out in the country than in almost any other land of Western Europe. Christiania is situated at the head of a wide and deep fjord which winds its way in and out from here to the North Sea. At the head of the fjord are many little bays forming excellent harbors. These bays are filled with shipping and one may see goods loading for and unloading from different parts of the world. Norway is one of the leading maritime nations of Europe. The Norwegians are natural sailors, and their boats ply on all the seas of the globe. They have an enormous carrying trade. They own several thousand steamships and about six thousand sailing vessels, which are every many millions of dollars in carrying cargoes for traders in all countries. But come to Holmenkollen and see with your own eyes the capital of Norway. We can go there on an electric trolley with a reel on the roof as big as a flour barrel. It will lift us into the air higher above Christiania than the top of the Eiffel Tower is above Paris, and we shall have the city and harbor spread out before us. Our way up is past villas and patches of woods, and we land in one of the chief pleasure resorts of the Scandinavians. It is evening, the sun is just setting, and we have below us one of the fine city views of the world. I have looked down on the capitals of all the great nations. I have stood on the Eiffel Tower and photographed Paris. I have described Rio de Janeiro and its wonderful harbor from the sugar loaf, a mighty rock that rises out of the sea facing the city, and have taken snapshots of Santiago de Chile from Santa Lucia, the high bluff crowned with gardens and trees that rises almost straight up in the midst of magnificent buildings encircled by the silver-topped Andes. I have looked down on Constantinople from the hills above Pera, upon Cairo with its wilderness of mosques from the citadel, and last but not least, 
upon our own national capital from the Washington Monument. Each of the cities has its own beauty, but Christiania compares favorably with all. The mighty fjord on which it is built is here studded with green islands and has many bays backed by forest-clad hills. The houses begin near the water. They rise out of the green, their white walls and roofs of red tile forming a wonderful picture. Such is the view from Holmenkollen in summer. In the winter, when everything is covered with snow, it is far finer, and the surroundings are then the gayest of all the homes of Jack Frost. On Holmenkollen is held the skiing derby. This is a great Olympic meet of snowshoers and skiers, to which sportsmen come not only from Norway, but from all other parts of North Europe. The Holmenkollen leap is made from a ledge not far from the site of the view I have described. The man on his skis jumps from this ledge high over the heads of the spectators gathered on the frozen lake and on the hillsides below, and then shoots down the slope. The jump is one of more than a hundred feet and is watched by about 40,000 spectators who have seats in the grandstand put up on each side of the course or stand in the bleachers, which the space under the ledge may be called. The leap is always attended by the royal family, by the members of Congress, and by the high society of Norway. The king himself is fond of skiing, and he and the crown prince frequently engage in the sport during the winter. In this, they are like some of the monarchs of the Norwegian past, who, even before the discovery of America, were noted for their contests in jumping and gliding on these wooden runners over the snow. By whom the sport was originated, no one knows. But six hundred years before Christ, these people were spoken of in the records as those who run on the ski. Skiing might be called the national sport of the Norwegians. I am told that the children are taught to ski when very young. They practice jumping over small things at first, increasing the extent of their leaps and slides as they grow up. Many of the villages have their ski clubs, and every little town has a tourist hut on the hills nearby where the skiers take shelter. There are skiing parties during the winter, and young men and women go off together on long ski excursions. This means of locomotion is much used by the farmers of some parts of the country, and it is said that the snow is often so deep that from November until March the country folk must go about their business in this way. Skiing forms a part of the training of the Norwegian army. The soldiers must be able to run upon skis, and they practice being drawn on them behind a fast horse. Sometimes one man may ride the horse and have behind him several soldiers on skis, each of whom holds on to a strap tied to the saddle. The soldiers make charges on skis and run and jump and slide in formation over the snows. When one remembers the winter fighting of the Italians and Austrians, he can see how, in a mountainous country like Norway, such training might be almost invaluable. I have asked some questions as to just how skis are made. They are not like the snowshoes, which might be called a framework of strings fastened together somewhat like a tennis racket, but are long strips of wood five inches wide and about seven feet in length. The best wood is the ash, which can be easily bent so that it turns up a bit at the toe. The ski varies in thickness throughout its length. In the middle, where the foot rests, it is an inch thick, but it grows thinner toward the front, curving up at the tip. It is fastened to the foot by straps, and it should be well buckled on. On the downgrade, the skis are held parallel. The feet must be kept close together, 
and the body well balanced. Sliding downhill, the speed may be that of an express train, and there are marathon races in which one man has made the record of 138 miles in a little more than 21 hours. This man was a lap. Their outdoor sports and their mountain climbing have helped to make these Norwegians among the healthiest people in the world. They are also prosperous looking. While one sees little display of wealth, there is a general look of thrift about them. Pauperism seems non-existent. Yet Christiania, like other cities, has its charitable institutions. The most famous of these is its great steam kitchen, which I have visited. It was established sixty-odd years ago by benevolent people to provide wholesome food for the poor at low prices. The charter granted the company limited profits to six percent of the capital invested, with a provision that any balance should be paid into the poor fund of the city. For a while there was a deficit every year, which was made up by the stockholders, but at last the kitchen grew popular and began to pay dividends. It became one of the most profitable enterprises in Europe for the capital involved. But that does not change the fact that it has been most beneficial to the poor. Thousands of bachelor students and single working women take their meals there regularly, and hundreds of poor families are supplied with wholesome, well-cooked food at nominal cost. I found the steam kitchen in an ugly brown building not far from the business center of the city. It was noon when I entered, and there were then 500 men, women, and children eating at its marble tables. The men had their hats on, although many of the women were bareheaded. They were all well-dressed for laboring people and all well-behaved. Each person waited upon himself, taking his plate to the counter to have it filled with soup or meat. At the same time, boys and girls were coming in and going out carrying buckets of soup and meat home for dinner. Dinner is served from 10 in the morning until 6 in the evening to an average of more than 2,000 people. Some come twice, and their food for a whole day will cost them not more than 35 cents. Tickets are sold for the meals to be taken away from the building, and they are often bought in bundles by charitable people and given away. Sometimes, if a man does some odd job around a house, he is paid in cash and meal tickets. It is considered better to give beggars meal tickets than money. In the fruit season, the company runs a canning department. At the butcher shop, meats are sold, and the baking department sells bread at wholesale or retail to the general public. One effect of the steam kitchen is that it has practically abolished the lower-class restaurants, which used to make money by selling inferior food to poor people. End of chapter 35